0: In the narrative of 1 uh, Samuel, Saul, King Saul comes to power in, in three stages, sort of three steps to the throne. There's a private anointing with Samuel, which is confirmed by three supernatural signs. That's the first step. Then there's a public ceremony at Mitzpah. Then there's a military victory over the Ammonites, over Nahash and the Ammonites. And then, in the architecture of the narrative, he's stripped of power. Three steps up, three sins down. He's stripped of power due to three sins. The first of which is in our text this morning, from chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. A few things to remember here before we, we begin. Saul was required, as the new king to lead Israel into battle against her enemies, and the chief enemies of Israel at this time are the Philistines. Now, after his anointing by Samuel, that's back in chapter 10, one of the signs that was given to him to seal that anointing was that he was told he would meet a group of prophets, he'd be filled with the Spirit, and that this was to take place at a garrison of the Philistines. Samuel tells him, and then when the Spirit comes upon you, do whatever your hand finds to do. In other words, deal with the Philistines. Israel wants a king like the nations, remember, to lead them out into battle. God has capitulated to that request. Now, deal with the Philistines. But Samuel says, he says, when the time comes to do this, I want you to go, and I want you to wait for me at Gilgal. I want you to wait seven days, and then I will come and offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and a peace offering, and I'll show you what to do. So after this happens, right, before before turning to the Philistine threat, which is to the west of where Saul resides, he turns east and he defeats the Ammonites. Nahash, their king, His name means serpent or snake. So Saul crushes the serpent in the land. Maybe, maybe this one will be an obedient son, a faithful Adam, a faithful Adam, who will do what Adam failed to do. There's every reason for hope at this point in the story. And on the heels of that military triumph, We get Samuel's second inaugural address, which we looked at last week, where he binds the king to the covenant. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. That brings us to our text this morning. We're going to make two points. You can find find them on the back inside page of your bulletin. The nation threatened and the kingdom lost. The nation threatened and the kingdom lost. So first, the nation threatened. So Saul's now king. He's finally addressing the Philistine threat. It's a very good sign. It's a sign of obedience. He chooses 3,000 men. He keeps 2,000 of them with himself. He puts another 1,000 of them with Jonathan, his son, who is, by the way, for the first time introduced in the narrative right now. We're not even told he's Saul's son. But he's introduced. He's a noble son, as we'll see, throughout the rest of the, the narrative of First and Second Samuel. Well, first Samuel, anyway. So they're both stationed. Saul's troops and Jonathan's troops, in the central hill country of Israel. they're very close to each other, a couple miles apart. And they're not very far from the Philistine outpost at Giba, which was mentioned in the reading. Jonathan attacks the outpost. And this escalates the tensions. The text very dryly says he attacked the outpost and the Philistines heard of it. (laughs) You would think. You would think. So Saul responds to this, this shot being fired, with a trumpet blast, summoning Israel to prepare for war. He says, let the Hebrews hear. And this is the press release. Saul has attacked. Those are the first three words of the press release. Actually, it was It was Jonathan who attacked, likely at Saul's direction. But in any case, the announcement is Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious or hateful in the eyes of the Philistines. And the people then are summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. This is another very good sign. Gilgal is where Samuel told him to wait before he engaged the Philistines. So Saul is being obedient again to the prophetic word. But if you were listening to the reading, you would note that the terms of this conflict are ominous for Israel. The odds here are very long. The Philistines assemble 3,000 chariots, 6,000 riders, and soldiers, the text says, And here the text is alluding to the promise to Abraham. Soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In addition to this, just after our text, we're told of a brutal social economic fact. The Philistines controlled the iron making industry in the land. There were no Israeli blacksmiths. They depended on their enemy to have their weapons made to have their tools and weapons sharpened, and they were being charged inflated prices to do so. And the text says, this is again just after our text, that on the day of battle, not a soldier had a sword or a spear, only Saul and Jonathan had them. I mean, even if that's hyperbole, It's a shocking, terrifying situation to be in. Israel is unarmed and virtually defenseless against a massive invading force many times larger than Saul's 3,000 men. A force now deployed in the very heart of the nation. And then the text tells us when the people saw that the situation was critical, this is in verse 6, and that the army was hard-pressed. How's that for an understatement? The army was hard-pressed. They hid in caves and in rocks and in cisterns. It's like a mini-day of the Lord where people hide in the mountains and in the caves. Some even crossed the Jordan, deserting the land into Gilead on the other side of the river, the text says. Scared demoralized, disarmed, badly outnumbered. The army is paralyzed with terror. Which brings me to the second point, the kingdom lost. So in the midst of this confusion, right, and this cowardice, and this situation which you should experience as a kind of bone-chilling fear, Saul stands tall. He remains at Gilgal, and all the troops with him, the text says, were quaking with fear. He's right where Samuel told him to be. He's not in the caves hiding. He's not across the river out of harm's way. He's with the terrified troops. And he waits. He waits seven days. Again, he's doing what the prophet asked for. He's doing what he was told to do. Imagine the pressure here. Seven days, looking and watching and waiting for Samuel, trying to keep some sense of morale and order among your troops. Right? Troops who the text tells us were beginning to scatter. They're dwindling hour by hour, day by day. They're no longer even three thousand. By the end of the week, the end of the text tells us he'll be down to 600 men. Every minute that goes by, he loses his force. And the Philistines will have 10 times as many men just on horses. Not counting soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Not even bracketing out the infantry. So it's dire, right? And these frightening minutes, they pass like hours. And the days are endless. And the stress and the tension is unrelieved. It is unbearable. Saul has one question. Where is Samuel? Where is he? Day and night and day and night and day and night. Where is Samuel? Can anyone see Samuel? Finally, finally having waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. He's listening to the prophet. In the face of mass defections and imminent impending slaughter, Saul says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And he offered up the burnt offering. And, and, now this is hard to believe. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrives. One might think Samuel set him up, but that would be probably too suspicious a reading of the text. But just as he finished the offering, he waits 168 hours. So Saul is clearly relieved to see him. He has no sense of any wrongdoing. He goes out to greet him. Literally, the text says, he goes out to bless him. He's not conscious, it appears, of any wrongdoing on his part. And then startlingly, Samuel sharply rebukes him. What have you done? Now, the one we thought might be a new Adam is being questioned like God questioned Adam. And like Adam, Saul starts to pile up some excuses. He blames the men who were scattering. He says to Samuel, you didn't come at the set time. He blames it on the Philistines assembling for battle. And then he adds what appears to be a very sincere and pious motive. Here's the thing about sincere and pious motives when they're self-professed. We never know if they're fig leaves of piety, or not? He says, I I thought, now the Philistines have come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. It's hard to know. Should we take him at face value or not? It seems reasonable. So I felt compelled, he says, constrained. He was not acting recklessly. That's the part of his argument here with Samuel. I was not acting recklessly. I'm not trying to usurp anyone. I had no choice. I did what was necessary. He offered the burnt offering. It seems impossible not to sympathize with him. What would any of us have done in the situation? Remember, later, in, just after this in Israel's history, kings will offer sacrifices. There wasn't a hard and fast line at this point. Well, Samuel does not sympathize. (laughs) For the prophet, this is just disobedience disguised as worship and fidelity. You have done a foolish thing, he says. You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. The command was not merely to wait seven days. The command was to wait seven days and wait for Samuel to come so that he not you, could offer the sacrifices. Samuel had the priestly role. Like Adam, Samuel is essentially saying, you've disobeyed the command, the test, and like Adam, you will lose your royal glory. His kingdom is forfeited in accordance with the sanctions of the covenant. It'll be swept away, Saul says. And get this, Samuel says, the Lord has already... Already sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him. It's as good as done, the appointment to be ruler of his people. And why? The text leaves no doubt. There's no ambiguity in the text here because you have not kept the Lord's command. I mean, it is a devastating judgment on Saul. Although he is not personally, personally rejected yet, his kingdom is cut off. It will not endure. And he seems oblivious to it. I mean, you wonder about Saul's behavior in the rest of 1 Samuel, and you think, he must have concluded, I don't believe Samuel. There's no repentance. There's not even a question. There's no protest. He just gets back to business as usual. Samuel leaves. Saul counts up his men, which have now dwindled down to 600. So let me conclude with two points. I'm going to call them Saul and the chosen king. Saul and the chosen king. First, Saul. Now, as I mentioned, it is easy to feel sorry for Saul here. The situation was unbearable. His explanation seems reasonable. His motives seem good. He was trying under incredible strain to do the right thing. Again, it's not clear that a king can't under any circumstance offer a sacrifice at this point in Israel's history. Surely he did better than many, many, many would have in the same position. And the punishment seems severe. You're going to tear the kingdom from this guy for some kind of minor liturgical faux pas? Yet we must be clear. Neither Samuel nor the narrator, and thus God, none of them sympathize. (laughs) Obedience to the word of God to the command of the prophet is required and it's an all or nothing affair. Listen to James in the New Testament. He says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. All the commandments are broken in breaking one of them because of the unity of the law reflecting the unity of God. Saul was Almost obedient. And almost obedience is disobedience. He almost endured to the end, which is the same as not enduring to the end. But he ran the race well, and then he disqualified himself a couple of feet before the finish line. He stopped just short. It's like a car which almost works. The Yankees almost won last night, which is the same as losing. And there's an unraveling of Saul that begins here. A deep defect of character, barely visible now, but ultimately fatal. And so Saul stands as a warning to us. Right, to us who are practiced at the art of almost obedient. Who are in the neighborhood of being pure. Who are sort of, kind of, patient. Right, to, to us who excel at the skill of excuse making. At grading ourselves on a generous curve. Saul is a reminder to us that in the real world of pressure and threats and time constraints and enemies and economic scarcity, in the deadly serious world of Saul and you and I, God expects, God deserves, it is rational for his creatures to render total loyalty and obedience to the covenant. He expects his word to be honored above all earthly powers. He expects, yeah, he demands obedience from his leaders and from his people. He expects sanctity from us. The deepest tragedy of any human life is not all the things you think it is. It is failure to be a saint, a holy one. To not live up to the design and flourishing that God has for the human creature. Now, the Lord, God is quite aware, quite aware that this will often look foolish and virtually impossible. And yet, He summons us to fear Him and to trust Him and not the Philistines, real or imagined, who threaten us. Obedience, then, is greater than mortal danger, it is greater than conducting an imminent war, it is greater than avoiding slaughter. It is greater than massive political defeat. It is better to have the fabric of the universe unravel than to disobey the voice of God. It is better to have the fabric of the cosmos unravel. That's the lesson from Saul. Yes, it's a severe punishment, and in large part, it's because Saul is a public figure, the king and the representative of the nation. And so it teaches us something else, which drives us toward the gospel. It teaches us the nature of the exacting obedience required of the king who will, in fact, deliver Israel. And that brings me to my second application, the chosen king. He says here, the text says, the Lord has sought out a man after, literally a man according to, his own heart. This is often misunderstood to mean a godly man or someone with, quote, a heart for God. But the statement is about God's sovereign free election. The text is not about the place God has in the future king's heart. It's it's about the place that the future king has in God's heart. That's what the text is about. God chooses this one, and the certain success of this monarchy flows out of that electing mercy. Right? Saul was the asked for one. They asked for Saul. He was the people's choice. Tall, handsome. Right? David, in the short term, that's who the text has in mind David, he is the Lord's choice, the elect one. But David and his monarchy, David and his sons will also fail. This chosen one, this man after God's heart, he will be a debacle. Ultimately then, it is the elect one, the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, who is the man according to God's heart. So this text reminds us that we need a king Not merely to save us from our enemies. We need a king to save us from our kings. More than that, we need a king to save us from ourselves. From all of our almost obedience. And from all of our self-justifying rationalizations. From our perpetual taking matters into our own hands. From our Adam-like and Saul-like grasping and impatience in the face of the stresses of life. Right most of us have settled into a lifelong pattern of lowering our standards to match our performance. It's a gradual erosion. So right here in a text like this you have an opportunity to take the full measure. Right to see the radiance and the glory and the unspeakable cost of our Lord's obedience to the covenant. Right, the covenant that Saul and that David and that you and I have broken. I mean, think about it. The terrifying, almost torturous position Saul was in in this text. The enemies, the fear, the desertion, the dread, the overwhelming odds. They pale in comparison to the monstrous forces, visible and invisible, personal and political, that are arrayed against Jesus Christ and his obedience. They pale. That exacting obedience of Christ, personal, perfect, entire, precise, due to God, from Saul, Jesus renders it. And he does so in circumstances which no one has faced. From the moment he took the form of a servant, Calvin says, he began to pay the cost of our liberation. The suffering and the self-emptying and the poverty begin with the annunciation to Mary. And then the facing down of the demonic forces, the fasting, the prayer, the rejection, the misunderstanding, the scourging, the scorn, the sweating blood, the cross, the Father's judgment. In it all, Jesus refuses, like Adam, like Saul, like us, he refuses to impatiently find a way out or to grasp, or to engage in almost obedience. He doesn't call upon angels to deliver him. He waits. Unlike Saul, he waits to the end, the bitter end. He waits for the Father. And you know what happens when he waits? He is slaughtered. Like perhaps Saul and his army would have been had they waited. He is executed. His disciples, they ran and hid in the caves like the Israelite army. Unlike Saul, he was authorized to offer the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. That's why we had the New Testament lesson from Hebrews 5. Hear the pathos of this text. During the days of his life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, get this, with fervent cries, loud cries, and tears. That's how Jesus prayed. With loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his obedience. Heard on the other side of death. That's where Jesus' prayers were answered. This foolish, impossible obedience, right, endured for the joy set before him, it secures the forfeited promise of glory for all the children of Adam, all the sons of Israel. This obedience secures your inheritance. Saul forgot, and we often forget. The joy set before us when we were in the midst of life's pressures and tests and threats. But now, but right, because of Christ's full and unreserved and perfect, because of that luminous obedience, from the moment of his conception, that obedience in life and in death, what the reformed tradition calls his active obedience, that is, his, his obedient life and his passive obedience. His passivity in the face of bearing suffering. Because of that obedience, you can be and shall be obedient, holy children. Faith unites you to that obedient one. This is why here we are at the heart of the gospel of free justification. That obedience is counted as yours. You need a perfect, undefiled, entire, and exact obedience. To stand before the triune God with the cherubim and the seraphim in glory, worshiping that God, and Christ has rendered that obedience and given it to you freely by faith. This is why there's deep joy and gladness and a sort of resonance in the depths of every pious heart when they hear about the obedience of Jesus Christ. This is why we celebrate free justification, this is why we dance and frolic. And being united to the obedient one, the spirit will now produce a new obedience in us. We obey not because we're trying to secure our inheritance or our standing, but because it's already been secured. Right, Our duty, as we say when we read the law of gratitude. Sure, we're still stumbling. We're still falling. We're still hard-pressed, often afraid, But this is our comfort. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who's been tested and tempted in every way as you have been, yet without sin. So what do we do? Well, we approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. Confidence to receive mercy, and find grace to help in our time of need. Because that throne, that place of justice, because of the one who sits on it, it's been turned into a place of mercy, a place of grace. On that throne, there is a king greater than Saul, greater than David, greater than the Philistines you face, greater than your own infidelity. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the priest, the victim, given for us. Amen. Thank hey.